<laughs> it reminded me of sort of like first week of university, like I just got a cut coming to. What am I doing? What are we? Look at the state of it around. Look at the state of the house. Look at, this. Look at the state of. What are we doing? It's a moment I mean, of clarity. That's what freshest week is for, isn't it? Hopefully, to drive you to a moment of clarity. So, 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 little five-year-old Phil gets up. Says, "There's something out there." <laughs> Something in the jungle. <laughs> I've seen it. It's a bad slag. It's out there. It's, it's a bad, bad it's a slag. <laughs> it's a bad slag in the jungle. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Shark Liver Oil. This is part two of our read through of Lord of the Flies. I'm Matt. I'm Dave. Hello. <laughs> Obviously, we do a different book every few weeks. Um, this time we're reading through Lord of the Flies by William Golding, a bit of a classic, won the Nobel Prize for Literature, no less. And last time we got as far as, well, the first three chapters where these um, these boys have been stranded on this deserted island and they're waiting for help and they're working out what they're going to do. It was a solid start, <laughs> but um, we're waiting for them to kick it into high gear now. Yes. So uh, yeah. chapter four is called... Painted faces and long hair. I mean, it's from a different era, but I swear to you, Matt, if they spend this entire chapter just sort of like primping each other's makeup and making themselves look pretty, I will not be impressed. Nor, nor I, Dave. Nor I. Let's let's find out. So, painted faces and long hair. Um, so we're sort of. It's a nice morning. Lovely. They're, uh, they're, they're all... I'm sure it's very relaxing for everybody. Vigorous <laughs> constitutional place. on the beach, whistling yeah. as you go. <laughs> it starts actually with um, a little description of how sort of the the rhythm of life is developing on the island now, where mm. the mornings are quite nice and cool and probably the best time to get stuff done. Then yeah. you get the sort of high noon like heat where you can't really do anything. Yeah, and then the evening, which is similar to the morning but with sort of a more like unpleasant undertone because you know that night's on the way and that's when things get really scary there's also yeah. a, a mirage in the middle of the like a, in the middle of the day this yeah. sort of island appears and disappears and at first it's amazing and like shocking and then everyone very quickly gets used to it and it's just something that's there i thought it yeah. was very like a good comment on just what it's like for kids like yes. they're just, they're just resilient yeah, very much. Well, and for like for humans generally as well, I think like it's really interesting that he's like he's worked quite hard, Golding, to set himself up here a little scenario where he can sort of do the like you know human human greatness and fallenness and the rise and fall of civilizations through the development of human culture in like two paragraphs, <laughs> and and it, but it is that because he's doing this really fine balancing act of. You know, it's just these kids drop on an island and they're all acting out their particular social roles and, and, and psychoses and neuroses and the rest of it, like humans do. But then they're developing, like, government and rules about water management and military <laughs> and shit. And, I, like, I this has really sort of stuck with me since the last time we recorded this, of just, like, just sort of what a deceptively good thing Golding is doing here, setting this up. He could talk about it all. By talking yeah. about a maximum of like six named children, he's somehow making that a lens for everything. And yeah. I, I wouldn't be surprised if next we had like a little, you know, one end of the one end of the uh, one end of the island gets turned into a miniature 
Manhattan Project, you know, just to comment on the nature of uh, nuclear war as a lens for man's fallenness. Piggy, Piggy's over there using his glasses somehow to perform nuclear fission. And <laughs> <laughs> I'd believe it at this point with what Golding's managed to do so far. Um, so we zoom in, we zoom away from the named characters. Actually, we go to these little ones. This is sort oh, of a, yeah. a, like like a sub society. Like we we spend most of the time with the, the older kids who are making the decisions. Um, but there is this like this other mini group who are all these like small children who are just sort of existing. Um, yeah. We meet this child called Percival who spent two days crying and now plays little and cries often. He says that he went through a real sort of trauma. And and because yeah. there's just no one to help him or even understand, he just cried yeah. until he cried himself out, and now he's just sort of still he's scarred by it. But it, but he just sort of yeah, he, I just thought that was that was quite affecting. You know, he, yeah. he cries often and sort of plays yeah. little. Plays little. I'll, mm-hmm. I, 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 there aren't as many parallels between possibly post-apocalyptic modernist literature and where I currently live, as I might be implying. Uh, but that actually... Uh, so I live in Cambodia, and Cambodia is a very sort of post-conflict situation. They had a horrific genocide perpetrated by their own government in the late 70s. And um, uh, there's... Like, I work with people who were children at that time, and one or two of them who have had sort of therapy have have described to me an experience not unlike that like mm. of talking about like you you know you should still cry because the reason that you cried hasn't changed but you've just got nothing left so you just sort yeah. of you just sort of carry on and it's mm. not that's not getting better you know um and so obviously happy to say you know my my friends have you know process this in a very very different way and are obviously able to describe it and stuff so recovery is possible mm. but but it, this that actually that little bit really hit me actually in the gut because it was like fucking that's correct and mm. this this guy was a school teacher from wiltshire like this is quite extraordinary yeah so these little ones it says they um yeah they tend to spend the most of the day playing the the, the clusters sort of anyone who's age six or under they ignore the bigger kids except for when the meetings are called and they sort of wander along to those. But they live these quite intense little sort of personal lives of their own um, yeah. beneath the sort of wider, wider society. Um, there's three of them on the beach building sandcastles and two of the bigger boys go past and sort of kick sand and some of it goes in, I think, Percival's eye. And it's just a little quick observation of no consequence. Just everything carries on. You know, if there were a couple of adults on the beach, this guy, this this kid's getting bollocked. But yeah. um, nothing happens. Yeah. And the kid kind of feels like he should be bollocked and sort of takes that away with him anyway. Like, yeah. so this is really interesting. Like, he's internalized the idea of a rule about his behavior, which isn't ever going to be enforced ever again. Um, yeah. It's quite interesting. Yeah. And this um, sort of. This ha- this happens in sort of with a bit more force shortly after because one of the two, this kid called Roger, this very quiet, quite unsettling boy, um, he starts following Henry, who's one of the little kids, yeah. um, and like just basically stalks him for a bit. It's a real uneasy read this, yeah. and starts to sort of throw stones around, like around Henry, but not actually at him. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it says there's this sort of. Hangovers. There's a really good line. I'll just find. 
Yeah, he says there's there's a space round Henry, perhaps six yards in diameter, into which he dared not throw. Here, invisible yet strong, was the taboo of old life. Round the squatting child was the protection of parents and school and policemen and the law. Yeah. So Rod- Roger's arm was conditioned by a civilization that knew nothing of him and was in ruins. So there's that sort of yeah. that hangover of like everything he's learned is still it's still there, but it's just sort of a ghost now. It's not yeah. really real anymore. Yeah, yeah, very much. And I'll tell you what else struck me about that particular line was, I, I don't know why I was expecting this, but I was kind of expecting William Golding to write this in this way where we were never quite sure what had happened hmm. to bring them to the island or off the island. But there's actually, there's this little mention here of was in ruins, you know, this civilization was in ruins. And I was, and and that's kind of giving us slightly more confirmation than I think a, a later author would have done about about the kind of futility of this, you mm. know, rather than letting it be hopeful, but then nothing happening. Um, he's he's kind of comfortable, so he wants to bring out the irony a bit more of all these rules existing in a world where there probably aren't any adults, and because um, uh, we've had the mention of the atom bomb first chapter yeah just saying maybe it was and then this it's in ruins and then later on obviously there's a big thing that happens in a couple of chapters time which sort of tells you that the world really is going on but possibly not for much longer Mm. um and and it's it's that was just really interesting decision for me to like steer right towards it and just make that bluntly a part of the storytelling instead of instead of going for the sort of cheap shivers of Ooh, is the world really there? Is it not? What's gone on? We do not know. We have no radio. Maybe yeah. there are zombies. Certainly there are zombies. You know, like which is where like modern popular culture would have gone with this. Um, you know, this is much more. Now I'm talking about what it's like at the end of the world when kids are left on an island together. Yeah, yeah. It's just sort of a glimpse of beyond the island, which we very rarely, very rarely see at any point in the book. Yeah. Um, so then Jack arrives and he sort of recruits Roger to go hunting. Jack paints his face which makes him sort of camouflaged. And it says it's sort of, he's described as feeling liberated then to maybe do more things that he, he I think it's sort of, it's told in, in parallel to this, what we've just had of the sort of the ghost of society stopping this little little boy being hurt. Yeah. And this, this, this Jack, you know, he, he wants to, you get the feeling he's being pulled towards being more sort of savage. And yeah. this is one of the sort of, this is sort of the gateway that lets him, be more savage and disregard some of the rules that come with the the, the choir uniform and the, <laughs> and the house badge and all that kind of stuff. Do you know what? I've just I just made the connection with you saying that. I've always wondered why that scene... Do you know Apocalypse Now, which is another what happens when society crumbles story about the will to power and violence and the rest of it and human darkness? Um, yeah. You know that bit? towards the end where the Martin Sheen character uh, like rises out of the swamp with his face all covered in mud and stuff and why that's so iconic it's this, I reckon this is where Coppola got it from because that idea of like wearing camouflage as a a purposefully dehumanising thing, you know, something that you do to make yourself more able to kill is Mm. quite a quite an interesting quite an interesting thing, you know yeah, I really liked this creepy line at the end of it. The mask compelled them. It's like, Ooh. goodness. Yeah, I tell you what, we've done a few Stephen King, but like, that's up there for some of the most chilling, chilling one-liner I think I've read in anything we've done on this podcast. 
Yeah. This is, I think that's probably one of the reasons I like this book. It's got sort of that sort of little thread of horror running through it all. Yeah. Um, so we move over to, to the more civilised end, Piggy and Ralph. Um, Ralph finds Piggy boring, um, but it's, it's fun, fun to pull his leg every now and again. Um, yeah. In, in the light of what happens later in this little bit, actually this thing of, like, it's, it's almost weirdly sweet. It's not. Ralph is being a prick to Piggy, <laughs> who's the only person on the island that's not about to kick off. Um, but... Um, it is almost sort of sweet that Piggy is so unthreatening a presence that it is with him that Ralph can still behave like a 12-year-old and just mm. be a bit bored and a bit, oh, what are you talking about? Fuck off. You know, like, <laughs> whereas with everybody else, he has to do this, I'm holding the conch now stuff, um, yeah. which is a lot of yeah, later true. on. Um, so it was weirdly sweet, but also not. <laughs> yeah. Um, Ralph sees smoke on the horizon. It's like, shit, ship, brilliant. Um, yeah. And he looks at it, thinks they're going to see our smoke and, and they'll come and rescue us. He looks up the mountain. There's no smoke. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. <laughs> now, You've got to be fucking kidding me. Uh, exactly that. <laughs> and it was, it was, this bit is dead funny. What, like, the next little bit contains within it the line um, uh, Ralph used the worst word he could think of, and that word is bloody. And I'm <laughs> like. Ralph, I've got a whole. Ba- I've got. I've got news for you, mate. The, the English language contains means for you to kick ass about this in the way that you should. Yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you, because it like it's just, isn't it? Just, just this sort of like it's so well described, like how tangible and yet how far away this thing is. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know this sort of desperate rush to go and restart the fire eventuates, and uh, oh, I felt every step. Yeah, and it's heartbreaking when he gets to the top and he, the fire's out and he's he's sort of shouting, come back at the ship as it moves away. And he's just absolutely gutted. And in a lesser... I like, that's what you sort of put in... Like, you could you do that and it would almost always sound reedy and, and kind of a little bit pathetic and a little bit, like, just underwhelming. But I felt it. When he was jumping mm. up and down there screaming, come back at the horizon. Because there's this mm. sense of how close it almost was and how unlikely yeah. it is to happen twice you know yeah and he's standing in the, sort of the ashes of the fire absolutely devastated the, the hunters are supposed to be keeping it going nowhere to be seen yeah. and then just this chant comes over the, the wind and it's the hunters returning chanting this kill the pig cut its throat spill its blood and they're um, returning all excited because they've, they've killed a fucking pig. Right, right. At which point were we in a GIF economy at this point in human development? <laughs> Somebody's holding up that Ron Burgundy one that just goes, well, that escalated quickly. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, they, what happened was they put paint on their faces and then went for a walk, came back, and now they're all cut its throat, slit its blood. Yeah, they're deaf. Woo, woo, woo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Jack comes back with the hunters. They're all absolutely loving it. Um, they've had a taste for this, and they seem to have really enjoyed it. Um, it's it is like yeah, this escalation sort of through the roof. They've um, they've killed this thing. They're all dancing around with it, um, and obviously Ralph is just furious. He doesn't. He barely even sees it. All he yeah. all he's saying is he just keeps saying the same thing. You let the fire out, and it sort of cuts through. Yeah. Um, Jack's excited sort of reliving of what had happened. 
Yeah. I, I thought this was really interesting. This bit, the way Jack sort of behaves is, again, it's really interesting to, like, control the development of character and the way that he sort of... Because the key moment with Jack is, I mean, the fact that he's a, a mad dictatorial maniac making his guys dress up in their frigging choir costumes and march around the island. But also, um, that he's the first time he looks at the possibility of killing something, he can't bring himself to do it because he feels it would be like a holy thing, like it would mm. be too enormous a thing to kill. And like that idea of like life being sacred and him growing this desire to end it for reasons he, he won't ever properly kind of explore, I don't think is just mm. really, really powerful. And, you know, he, you know, paint the face, and then all of a sudden he knows how to butcher a pig. You know, qu- mm. quite apart from that as a, as a logical leap in storytelling, which I could have some fun with. But actually, actually it's really powerful, because that's all it took a couple of times, and I want to kill a pig. And he's literally, he can't understand anybody having a moral objection to what he's done. Because yeah. to him, this is the point of being alive, almost. Like, everything else like even getting off the island can get fucked like why do you want me to care about that fire i've just killed a pig do you not understand that i've killed a pig yeah but i've killed a pig i I killed the pig and we had a chant and the blood was on the floor and everything you're talking about fire for and it's just (laughs) it's almost like this like completely blinkered i'm here to kill pigs thing that has just appeared in this otherwise priggish and unexceptional you know, slightly wankerish twelve-year-old, um, yeah. has suddenly become fucking Charles Manson. And the thing is, he's not asking for much, Ralph. He's not, you know, he's not squeamish about him going. He's not saying you're not allowed to go and kill stuff, which you know would have been <laughs> fair enough in itself. He's saying, yeah, go and kill your pig if you want to. Just keep the fire going. That's all. That's all he's yeah, asked. That's it. The that's one it. Thing. And the only argument Jack's got about that is, yeah, but we needed to surround it. I needed to get them all because we need to have it surrounded. I had a plan. Like, so it's not only I had to kill the pig, it's I had to kill the pig in the way that appeared soonest to my imagination and everything else can get fucked. And it's, it's, yeah, it's breathtakingly self-centred, isn't it? Well, I think it's because I think at this point, I think Jack, if you were to ask him, would say he wants to be rescued as well and he wants to keep the fire going to do that. He, He sees why you need to keep the fire going. But he's not mature. He's not as mature as Ralph in that he's not mature enough to know to sort of think things through that far and think, oh, if I take these hunters away, we're going to lose the fire, and that would mean we risk the chance of not getting rescued. I don't think he even thinks that far. He just thinks, oh, right, he gets caught up in this hunt and then thinks, right, I need more hunters. I know where I can get them, so I'll do it. And I think that there's an interesting thing here where Jack doesn't think things through, mm. and he. He can't see. He can't even admit that he doesn't. You know, yeah. he doesn't. He doesn't realize that he's even. He's even missing that part of his personality yet. That's really smart. That is incredibly, incredibly insightful, actually. And yeah, that's what it is. It's this sense of, in a sense, there's a massive. You'd almost call it like a culture gap between everything that Ralph holds important and why, and everything that's self-evident to him, and. Mm. Jack and everything he holds important and everything that's self-evident to him and there's this sort of enormous chasm that nobody's got the skills to talk across because they were all you know junior whatever like you know Mm. none of them know anything about anything and uh, and that's the sort of tragedy and for that tragedy not to become farce 
I think is really amazing. Like, I, I've been thinking about this most of the way through this little chunk. So much of this shit going down, the fact that it's 12-year-olds could make it into a punchline. But actually, yeah. I'm feeling it. And that's that's really impressive. Yeah. So they have this argument, and um, it gets very, very heated, and Piggy like gets involved as well and shouts, you and your blood, Jack married you, we could have gone home. Yeah. And um, you could, I think that's another thing. Piggy knows better than to sort of go up against Jack like this, but he's just he's just so upset about yeah. sort of the fact that they've lost the ship as well. And in the end, Jack and Ralph are, are arguing, and Jack basically punches Piggy. And yeah. it's partly because he dares not... He's angry, and he dares he not punch, punch Ralph. Ralph. Yeah. 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 And, and, and like, and with, like... Like astonishing short sightedness as well, because he breaks one of the two lenses in Piggy's glasses, which is the only way mm. that they make fire, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. like, so honestly, uh, you know, you could almost—that's an even more stupid thing to do, and a great image of how somebody who's just overcome with the fact that the only thing I can do about this is punch something will, in mm. solving one problem that way, solve nothing and cause yeah. more problems. Um, and just in again in a single little you know vignette whatever it is two hundred words and it's done yeah. and uh, yeah again great I like this because this is a this is a dreadful this is a terrible thing for him to do and this is this whole argument and this action is all being played out in front of all the other kids yeah. so everyone's watching and um, R- Ralph obviously calls Jack out and says that was a dirty trick and shames him yeah. and uh, and Jack uh, R- Ralph says to Jack and then. Jack sort of puffs himself up after a minute and just says, I apologise. And there's this sort of yeah. murmur around all the kids of like, of, in, be, everyone's really impressed with Jack. And <laughs> used the words, like, what the I apologise. <laughs> well, so I had two reflections on this. One is that that's just a completely perfect parody of the sort of British public school, you know, the era of the Suez crisis, you know, the empire's definitely still there, except it's definitely flipping not. Um, hmm. Kind of mindset uh, that is like, well, above all, being the bigger man is being the bigger man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and so saying, I apologize, which is the sort of, he's not saying, I'm sorry, he's saying, I apologize, which is both transitive and has more syllables in it, so it sounds more grown up. Yeah. I apologize. Um, <laughs> And, and and it impresses all of these kids because they're from that same sort of social milieu. And it's, that's just, I found that really funny. The other thing is that, to become satirical for a moment, I, I note that, um, uh, I, you know, it's not unusual for politicians to come from a, a particular parallel sort of social environment. Um, hmm. and, and this is sort of, I think, what they're hoping will happen when they make apologies, which are now roundly ridiculed, condemned and dismissed for doing the <laughs> stupid things that some politicians do. You know, when they come out and they go, I'm terribly sorry, obviously it was totally inappropriate. And they're hoping everybody's going to go, goodness me, what a statesman. What an honestly stood up like a good chap and faced his own weaknesses. I will vote for him again. And of course, now everybody just goes fuck off. <laughs> yeah, I do. Th- I do. Th- I do think the um, like in a lot of parts of sort of celebrity culture, the groveling apology, public apology, does work. Though oh, I can, I can, I can remember examples where, like, you know, some guy, someone's been caught having an affair, some celeb. And then like everyone like <clears throat> the Twitter goes mental, like they they, they hate yeah. him, he's the worst guy ever. He comes out and does a groveling like 
apology on like a some kind of talk show yeah. and suddenly everyone's like oh he's so brave like oh he's a good <laughs> <laughs> think people well, seem to want to either love or hate yeah like well that. so and it gives them the opportunity well and that's really interesting because that is actually one of the things that, that that this book is setting up and playing around with is this thing of what do you do about like transgression which is a problem that like all cultures everywhere have to deal with you have to have some sort of mechanism if you've got a rule and you've got a taboo you need some kind of mechanism for making yourself right against that taboo. Or you need to have a norm of people leaving your society all the time because there's no way for them to live in it any longer because they've done mm. something against the rules and there's no way of getting back in. And um, and and so, and I think, as culturally speaking, you know, in, in the UK, um, I think we've got a problem in that there's a lot of, you know, the... the, the I, you know, the Instagram apology isn't going to do the job anymore, but there's no other mechanism for somebody to kind of say, I know I screwed up. Can I, can I still be part of this, please? Um, We don't have that. And on the island, you know, the tensions that are emerging are precisely because he's apologized, but he doesn't mean it. Like he's leveraging Mm. the social cachet of the phrase, I apologize without actually changing his behavior in the slightest. So there's no kind of repair to the social fabric there. All there is now is the guy whose job it is to kill things, and he seems to be quite good at it and to quite enjoy it, worryingly, and to enjoy (laughs) chanting about it afterwards, doesn't seem to be able to act in accordance with our needs. What are we going to do about that? That's going to become a problem. Yeah, and Ralph sort of sees this, but he's trapped by it because yeah. he can't he can't do anything. Like he, he, everyone's, it, it seems to like Jack says this, and suddenly the one thing Ralph has on his side is everyone wants the fire to keep going. Everyone wants to be rescued. So, the sort of public pressure is going to mean Jack's got to sort of toe the line. But in one one sort of phrase. Everyone sort of rode in behind Jack and gone, oh, what a good guy for saying sorry. Yeah. And Ralph, Ralph just sort of, he, he won't let it go, obviously. He doesn't, he's not going to take that. Yeah. And he, just, he ends up just sort of, because he can't do anything else, he just stands there yeah. where the fire was. And everybody starts building a new fire and Jack's sort of trying to be cheery and stuff. And everyone's got to build it a few yards away because no one feels they can ask Ralph to move. So he sort of, <laughs> he, he sort of displays his, like, how he's still the chief. Yeah. Um, just by standing still and doing nothing, that's, and it's the only way he can respond. Yeah, that, I mean that's. I mean, it's not exactly Cal Drogo, you know, melting gold and pouring it over the head of a rival, <laughs> but <laughs> but it, it's it's effective. Um, I, I quite like the idea of what would have happened if one of the little kids had just completely missed all the subtext and had gone, Ralph, can we can we can you move, please? We need to do this stuff. <laughs> like what he would have done about that. Um, but that's that's fan fiction territory, isn't it? Yeah. Um, to light the fire, they need Piggy's glasses, and um, Ralph goes over and asks for them, and takes them. And says, "I'll bring them back." And this is this is described in the book as a moment where the relationship subtly changed between Ralph and Piggy now, and, and Ralph suddenly is seeing him as a friend rather than just this sort of strange sort of character to to ridicule and use. Yeah. Um, because almost sort of through Jack's actions, they've sort of proved the value of someone like Piggy. Because mm. mm-hmm. he's sort of, at least Piggy's on Ralph's side insofar as he can think things through and see a bigger picture, which a lot of the others seem to be unable to do. Yeah, well, and and is sincere as well. That's that's mm. both the great 
you know that's that's why Piggy is vulnerable and why Piggy is valuable because he's gonna he's he he's gonna say what he thinks is good. He's not gonna do anything about it because he doesn't see himself as somebody that can do something about it. But hmm. he's not gonna he's not gonna express his weakness by stamping it on everybody else. Whereas that's precisely what Jack does. And hmm. if you're Ralph and you're running stuff, you want somebody that responds generally speaking within the boundaries of their own person to their own weaknesses rather than spreading it around because if you spread it around then you've got a social problem um and yeah it's just i mean and again 12 year olds and this is politics that we're discussing here we're discussing how relationships drive decisions in uh, in areas uh, with negotiations around resources and violence and they are 12-year-olds. And this is brilliant. Like, this is, you know, whole textbooks have been written about this stuff. And <laughs> and yet here it all is, just in a, am I going to move for you to build the fire? No, I'm fucking not. Like, it just, <laughs> you know, great. <laughs> yeah. Um, they all sort of sit around the fire. They start roasting the pig meat. This is the moment where Ralph's got to sort of, he's got to swallow his pride because he's really hungry and this stuff's good it's good stuff it's roast pork yeah no who can, who who amongst us can pass up roast pork in particularly in this circumstance i'll tell you what someone who does is simon simon won't eat it and gives some of his he gives his meat to to piggy who jack's trying to sort of ostracize um yeah. so sort of jack rounds on him he's furious he says, no, we've no, we've no fucking vegans here. You're eating it. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> I mean, and he is as well, isn't he? In later life, in a pre if if the apocalypse hadn't happened in this story universe, uh, he would absolutely have been the guy who, when his daughter in 25 years' time brought home first boyfriend who said he was a vegetarian, he'd be like, <laughs> you what? Have a chicken nugget. Welcome to the barbecue. It feels like um, Simon's the one person on the island who has less in common with Jack than Piggy does. Um, but I think yeah. I think it's the fact that Simon was in sort of Jack's group that's protected him a bit. Like yeah, he's 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 seen as weird, but he's sort of he's he's like he might be a weirdo, but he's our weirdo. I think would be the, the way that Jack sees that. Whereas Piggy's more of an outsider, isn't he? Yeah, 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 exactly. Um. So they go on and on about this hunt again. Ralph's still sitting there. It's sort of stewing in this um, sort of the knowledge of what's happened and how he couldn't quite. I think he's trying to he, he's trying to get a grip on just how he's unable to get everybody else to understand how serious this was because everyone's just forgotten about it now, letting the fire out and missing the ship. Yeah. So he, he he calls a meeting. Uh, Again, Classic acting out good, very. Yeah, I was going to say that. Listen, there Civil hasn't been an agenda. Let's gather together in the meeting beach, and uh, and we'll we'll thrash it out. I'll bring the thrashes. You know, I, it's just so formal, and I understand it because you do what you've had acted out to you, and yeah. they won't have had any other any other taking things seriously mechanism acted out to them. So, you know, there we go. Mm. There it is. But um, but it's really funny. It's twelve-year-olds going. Well, we'll set the bloody agenda for a start, and uh, and a point of order, Mr. Speaker. Um, uh, and and then we crack right into Simon doing his best John Burko impression, which is just is my, my favourite. By the way, we've got listeners around the world who aren't familiar with the Speaker of the House of Commons in the UK. Just look up John Burko, B 
B-E-R-C-O-W and the word order and you will have a marvellous time. Nothing order. at all to do with politics. Exactly, political yeah. outcomes. It's the sign of a man yeah. five foot seven in his stocking feet using only his order. voice to get 650 people to shut the fuck up. And by bellowing the word order in the style of club singers... And a variety of farm animals at a variety of pitches is glorious. Order! Sorry, digression. Digression. But There's a great clip in the Commons with, with John Burke where someone else is speaking, someone sort of speaks up in the background, and he does an order, but it's it comes out as a croak. You just hear him go, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's incredible. And the thing is, that's completely in keeping with what the British Parliament has been like. And I feel like... Just watching those videos a little bit will help those of our American listeners who may not be familiar with the the glory and tradition of the mother of parliaments, um, just to get a sense of exactly how much it does sound like at times a room full of really angry farm animals who've just realised what abattoirs are. Like, that's what it sounds like. There's one guy in the middle whose job it is to go... Bleh, 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 and that's a key cornerstone of uh, one of the oldest democracies in the world, ladies and gentlemen. That's the way it works. And here we have a 12-year-old cracking out that. And this whole scene, I know it's tense, and it is tense, and it's really well written, but there was a bit of me in the back of my head that was just hearing a 12-year-old John Burke going, Order! Order! <laughs> so we move on to Beast from Water. Um, Ralph's heading back to sort of the, the meeting area. He's fed up. He's He's slowly becoming to realise that he is having to play the adult and he's the only one and it's not much fun doing that um, he's, he's sort of, as he's walking back he's realising how sort of uncomfortable his shirt is because it's all dirty and worn now and how he's sick of being like like just like not having a proper shower and stuff, he's just fed up we've all been there haven't we Matt that's, yeah. that's, that's the end of a, port, a three day three-day music festival poorly managed where you turned up on the Thursday and you're leaving on the Tuesday morning and it, the tent hasn't been fit for purpose uh, <laughs> since uh, since Friday <laughs> evening. And I, Yeah, I am describing something that's actually happened to me. Yes, I feel him on this. This is the festival 2004 Monday morning. That's how he feels. And, and <laughs> I, I've been there, Matt. I've been there. <laughs> it reminded me of sort of like first week of university. Like, you just got a cut coming to... After like uh, just a, a <laughs> massive bender and just looking, I was thinking, oh, what are, what am I doing? What are we? Look at the state of it around it. Look at the state of the house. Look at, look at the state. of What are we doing? <laughs> it's a moment I mean, of clarity. That's what Freshers' Week is for, isn't it? Hopefully, to drive you to a moment of clarity that means you don't entirely waste your money for the next three years. Um, but yeah, that's this is exactly what it's like. Oh, I haven't. Oh, washing. I need to work out how to do laundry because I'll tell yeah. you what. This shirt, goodness, no, 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 I'm not wearing this again. Yeah, he's looking around the clearing and there's this log which constant like, kids always sit on and then fall off because it rolls over. And it's always, like, well, increasingly less hilarious every time. But, like, no one's no one's ever thought to fix it. It's like, why has no one ever fixed that? We, we're just rubbish. We're just doing nothing. What a waste of time we are. Um, you, I, I, I enjoyed this because it just really got the yeah. sense of his frustration at just, like, just the, how rubbish everybody is around him for sort of doing serious stuff. Everyone can play. Everyone can have a good laugh. But no one can get anything done. Yeah. Exactly. And like, and, and it's, t- I mean, it is a little bit sad to see again, to see the moment in adolescence, which will turn into again in 40 years time, 
you know, somebody sort of, you know, really thinking they can seriously have a two-hour conversation about mortgages or whatever, you know, like taking taking things seriously um, hmm. and losing all the jokes. But um, uh, but at the same time, you're right. These are the kind of moments that are formative, and for him, it's frustration over the poor decision-making process of this the polity of which he is in charge. <laughs> it's just really funny. Like they didn't respect the committee procedure, and they haven't done the sweeping. And I don't know what we think. We're acting like a bunch of twelve-year-olds. A bunch of twelve-year-olds. And you just see him getting kind of red and jowly. And I'm with him on the question. He's right. They've been a yeah. complete bunch of pricks. <laughs> so they start this meeting. It's a bit later in the day than they normally hold a meeting. And. Um, there's this similar to what you've just said. There's this moment where it all begins, and Piggy stands on the outside of the circle. Um, says that he, he's gonna he'd listen, but he wouldn't speak as a sign of his disapproval. It feels like it's almost like Cicero. It's like some kind of classical uh, like <laughs> protest, and it's yeah. such a strange place for him to do it in front of all these little kids. <laughs> <laughs> you sort of imagine him, can't you? If he was, if he was, you know, if he was slightly more sort of grandiose, if he was sort of jack but with a couple of a levels you know actually thinking of that and sort of striking a semi-heroic pose stare you know <laughs> arm arm over the chest staring off into the middle distance waiting for somebody to notice how nobly he is forbearing to enter into the shambles at his feet hmm. you know and then <laughs> and then they fall off the log and everybody laughs, <laughs> hmm. and that's that's it that's politics <laughs> yeah um so He's got a he's got a speech sort of planned out in his head, Ralph, and he goes through it. Um, so he tries to tell them sort of constructively, tells them off constructively, basically about the fact you know we used to always bring water up here, we don't do that anymore. We also had to build the shelters. You only built one, and then me and Simon had to build the rest of them. You go into the toilet everywhere. We <laughs> promised we weren't going to. That's incredible. <laughs> You're shitting everywhere. No, no. Yeah, everywhere. Everywhere there is shit. Everywhere you have shat in every place. It's everywhere. <laughs> the thing is, everyone's res- all the kids' response to that is like laughter as well. And he's like, "No, yeah. it's not fucking it's not funny." Fucking funny. <laughs> That's it, isn't it? And it's like, and you, the thing is that I, I kind of love the way that William Golding has constructed so many of the key moments in his book to pivot around the fact that eleven-year-olds find things really funny sometimes, and like mm. how powerful laughter is if you can like beget it in that yeah. in that little micro society that like he's making a good point there shouldn't be crap all over the beach but because he's talking <laughs> yeah. about poo poo everybody just can't keep a straight face and that's it and they're just going to carry on shitting wherever they like yeah yeah um he goes, then he moves on to his, his key point about the fire saying come on we've got to keep the smoke going up there or we're going to die you know, he's pushing the we're going to die button here. He's really reaching. Yes, I mean, and he's not wholly unjustified in that either, is he? Yeah. And he says, right, we've got a new rule now. Only fire on the mountain because it's too dangerous everywhere else. And he's, I think one of the thinking behind this, because he says if you want to roast meat or stuff, you've got to go up there and do it, is just to make sure that that's always going to it's another yeah. way of keeping the fire going yeah keeping it there exactly tie their the tying their short-term survival their, their short-term keenly felt need for some food to their mm. long-term survival of attracting a ship yeah Can but it? the reaction to this is is uproar like yeah. the kids do not yeah. like the sense of this <laughs> yeah exactly because honestly so growing up 
my family went on a fair number of country holidays and they were always it was it was never the beach it was always let's go to a place where we can go for walks and when you're five going for a country walk is shit because you can't see over the hedges so it's just this endless parade of grass verges which are uninteresting and Mm. um and honestly, if it, the like, I was at a point of mutiny for most of those holidays for most of my early life. And if one of those holidays, on one of those days, my parents had said, by the way, from now on, the only food you get is at the end of one of these walks, I would have <laughs> fucking flipped. So I completely understand where these kids are coming from. Oh, I don't want to. I don't want to go for a walk. I don't want to have the food here. The food is good when it's here. It's rubbish on the mountain. I like mountains. mountains. <laughs> it's that, isn't it? It's that. It's trying to get a 12-year-old to go for a walk. Thankless task. Mm. Don't bother. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Jack says things are breaking up I don't understand why trying to sort of reach out to everybody and Jack sort of steps in here and he barrels in like Trump he's like he blames he picks one group to, to blame he, blame, he blames the little ones he says it's all your fault because you're afraid yeah. of this beast yeah. there's no beast anywhere because I've been all over the island I'd have seen it and if there is one, I'd kill it. And he gets loads of uh, sort of frightened applause then from everybody. And it's like Ralph's been trying to deal with these like really big issues yeah. and big things that are quite hard to grapple with, but he, he needs everyone to sort of understand how important it is. Yeah. And Jack just sort of rolls in, picks something out of the air, which no one's talking about, this beast, but thinks, well, this is a threat, which everyone's scared of. So he uses that, yeah. picks a group of people he can, he can demonise to say, it's all yeah. your fault, yeah. and then says, and I'm the only thing protecting you. It's a it's amazing how he sort of yeah. it's actually kind of kind of like dark genius the way he sort of he deals with public opinion Jack isn't it it's, it is there is an element of genius to it in a way well, well yeah uh, well yes at this phase in like when the book was written because that playbook I mean that playbook has been used by despots who wish to do appalling things and have people smile along with them since the start of time but it was sort of formalised in the modern era by the Nazis by Himmler and mm. Himmler Goering sorry um, and um, uh, and like you mean Goebbels, I do mean Goebbels, and that's <laughs> fucking embarrassing. Take away my degree. <laughs> we'll, just, we'll just chop this out. Himmler, Goering, Goebbels. One of the not the one that began with H, not the big one that began with H, the one that began with G, the other one that began with G. Yeah, yeah, him. not the yeah. fat one, the, yeah, the, the f- weird little skinny one. <laughs> <laughs> not the weird, not the weird fat one. The weird skinny. The one. weird skinny one, <laughs> as if there was only one weird skinny Nazi. <laughs> um, yeah, but like that, that playbook is straight out of the Nazis, and um, and I'm interested in sort of how Golding knew this and how much that had been, how much me knowing that is a function of history that's been done on the Third Reich since then because mm. this was written less than 10 years after the end of the First World War, Second World War, and how much he's just intuited that from just watching what the world has been like for the last 20 years, and how much he knows that there was actually a document somewhere in the, in the sort of German state that, that had though that playbook in it, you know. Because that's exactly what Jack does. Again, in four sentences here, or whatever, you know. Mm. Yeah, so Piggy tries to sort of talk this down to say that there is yeah there isn't a beast so don't worry about it and um and then this what this little one comes forward now this, the thing is about this book so far but all the kids have, have got very sort of classical like classic english names or jack simon percival ralph um 
And then this little link comes forward, and it kind of dumped me out of the story because it's called Phil. <laughs> I don't imagine that there's that any Phils were born before like the 1970s. It just no, feels like a, no, a middle-aged well, man's name. I, I submit to you that we that the current can- Chancellor of the Exchequer of the United Kingdom is a Phil who was definitely born in the whatever the 40s or the 50s or whatever. Gosh, so, I suppose you're right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So well, and also the Queen's husband. So actually, what you've got is. <laughs> <laughs> you can work that I, think, out as well. I think it's I think it's maybe because it's because it's because it's Phil rather than yeah Philip. rather than Philip. That's exactly <laughs> right. That is exactly right, isn't it? Like like Philip, Phil Phil actually. <laughs> this is what it That's is. Like Phil Mitchell, like exactly. A little bald it's kid. fucking it's fucking <laughs> EastEnders. It's Phil Mitchell. It's impossible to take seriously any man called Phil as like. A, you know, kind of upstanding pillar of whatever, because all I'm thinking now is Phil! Phil! <laughs> leave it, Phil! Leave it, Phil! He's not worth it, Phil! Leave it! <laughs> yeah. So, so, so little five-year-old Phil gets up, says, there's something out there. <laughs> there's something in the jungle. <laughs> I've seen it, it's a bad slag. It's out there, it's, it's a bad, bad it's a slag. <laughs> There's a bad slug in the jungle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um so so yeah, he um he says he's seen something. Um and then they get and there's I think Percival gets up. Oh, this is kinda of sad. He, he gets up, he gives his name, it asks him his name, and he gives his name and address and tries to give his telephone number and then starts crying. Um it's sort of a, a memory of sort of past yeah, you know, yeah, civilization. Of, it, crashes in doesn't it and like he's really good field uh, dolding at handling all of this like all of this trauma in a way where the book isn't just about a bunch of children crying but it still does realistically present it and he just absolutely crushing effect like saving it to this moment and just being like you know Mm. like this is it is just i mean my word you know like really my word so powerful yeah, um, and this other kid, Maurice, manages to sort of, all the all the little kids start crying now because everyone sort of this is almost catches from Percival, yeah. and then um, Maurice sort of pretends to fall off a log and's like, "Look at this!" And then it sort of the kids start laughing, and it's again, it's sort of it's that classic technique of if you've got a small child, if it looks like they're about to start crying, make just them laugh, do something to distract them. <laughs> yeah, and they sort of they sort of chill out. So they they get they get this they get this thing from Phil basically Phil <laughs> I can't say it was straight Phil says that there's, there's something in the in the jungle <laughs> Which is to be taken seriously, damn it. Um and then this Percival says, Oh no, it, it, I think it comes out of the sea and this suddenly like makes up makes them all stop and think because they they have seen all the island and they kind of believe Jack when he says I'd have found something yeah. if it was here. Yeah. But suddenly they, they look out to the sea and they're like, oh yeah. Anything I tell you could what. Be in there. This was genius. That that <laughs> moment, that one line, because it's not just what it does to the plot. It's what it does to the theme and what it does to this fact that you can't know that you're safe. And anybody mm. who's turned up and said. laugh at them trust me I kill things I've seen it all it's alright is lying to you because it's not possible to completely exclude the possibility of danger because we're human beings who live in a physical universe so Mm. like 
that whole thing just it absolutely reorients them back around all the shit they don't know, which is basically everything. And, like, forces them to look again at this big, you can't control the sea, you can't prevent what's going to come out of the sea, and it's always going to be there even when you sleep. And, and you know, they've kind of, they're in that moment, I think, robbed of a crucial bit of their violent innocence, which believes that if only you have enough strength, you can control what's going to happen. Mm. and instead reorients them around something, which I think is really important in a society. Again, like the mechanism for, for restitution and, 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 and redemption when you've done something wrong in order to bring people back into the culture. The other thing is dealing with the fact that the shit you're not going to know and not going to be able to control. And if mm. you don't have something that enables you to face that, you are going to go for despots all day long because they'll tell you that they can control it even when they can't. And it's just all of that's in a single line. No, 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 it comes out of the sea. Poof. And then the whole thing is about something else. I just thought, like, that, like that, this, I'll tell you, that line, that moment was where I was like, yeah, all right, Nobel Prize, can do. Yeah. Like, just re- really, everything pivots on a single line. Amazing. And the thing is, it, it, you can tell because the kids, it immediately sort of swings into just loads of stories about stuff they've heard, like monsters yeah. in the sea. And, yeah. and yeah. suddenly Ralph's like, oh no, this is, this is taking a turn. Yeah. Um, yeah. They, they, they continue this sort of argument over, does the beast exist? Simon even puts forward this idea of maybe the beast's us, which is far too a um, sort of sophisticated yeah. thought for any of these kids I, to deal with. I was with him, I'll tell you. When he did that, <laughs> I was definitely like... That we have met the enemy and he is us, you know. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm on board with it. But again, pitching that to twelve year olds, not a smart idea. Yeah, it's it's getting too dark to see, and as it's getting dark, Ralph, in a desperate bid to sort of pull things round, just says, "Okay, let's just have a show of hands. Who believes that there are ghosts?" And he counts the hands, and his sort of heart sinks because it's like, oh no. This do. is this is where we're yeah. going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And 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 again, interesting thing when you're basing politics around what people are scared of. Mm. People don't face their fears very much and they grow bigger and in their hindbrains and then they vote on the basis of the massive fear they've never really thought through. And that's the game. And you'll do really stupid things as a result. And it's just heartbreaking because you can you can think with your forebrain all you like, but if you ask everybody who's frightened of something, everybody will say me because that's part of being human. Mm. And and yeah, that that heart sinking feeling, goodness me, yeah, is familiar. Yeah. So then then they descend into arguing about sort of process again. Who's got the conch? I want to speak. And in the end, Jack's had enough, and he delivers what, when I read this as a fifteen year old, was my favourite line of the book. Bollocks to the rules. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. As you wrote that on the inside of the cover, uh, hiding, hiding, <laughs> hiding beneath the fig leaf of the rule that said that you could write quotes on the inside of the back cover. <laughs> yeah. Tell me you did it in highlighter, Matt. I was going to ask you that, by the way. You didn't just write it in like sort of biro, did you? I bet you've got to, you've got to have done that in like massive size letters with sort of overlaps and three D lines and all the rest of it. Uh, it's, uh, I'm disappointed in myself. It's actually in pencil. Matt, um, 
which which feels rather rather, rather cowardly because it means I could have rubbed it out. And if, like, <laughs> maybe maybe a few out. of us you did it, and I thought to. if one of if yeah, maybe three if of us did it. Somebody gets done for it. <laughs> Someone gets bollocks. I can just rub it out. Yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> it's politically savvy, Matt. You've got to say that. Like that's a that's a that's that's a, that's awareness of the situation in which you find yourself. I would say. <laughs> yeah, because if you scroll it across your book in bright yellow highlighter, you're very much all in then, aren't you? <laughs> you absolutely no are. You sort of you're sort of betting that your creative interpretation of the rules, albeit completely fair given how they've been given to you, is going to be respected by teachers whose normal MO is to go No, I'll see you in detention. Yeah. So all all the kids run off after this declaration of bollocks to the rules. Everyone runs off to <laughs> Yeah, bollocks to the rules. Up. Woo Um the, yeah, and uh, as they run away, like Piggy says, "Look, Ralph, blow the conch and bring them back because we're losing everybody here." And Ralph basically turns him, is like, "Mate, if I blow this and they don't come back, we really are fucked." And I don't think we will. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's true. Yeah, and like, but again, what a realization for somebody like Ralph to have to have had to have worked yeah. out. Like, yeah. this is purely symbolic, and if I lose the, the symbol, is shown to be ignorable the power of the symbol is never coming back. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and it's yeah, it's it is a very sort of savvy thing to 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 know when not to to try and use this, isn't it? Because it isn't a yes. um, as you say, it, it it's not a invincible sort of tool this, is it? If if you if it doesn't work, the first time it doesn't work is the last time you can use it. So, yes. yeah, you, you can yeah, use it. Yeah. I, I, what is it? No, I think I mean this is almost a truism of course, but like um Real power is knowing when not to use it. Mm. Um, I figure that's a quote from somewhere. I mean, it's definitely about effective monarchy, but I, you know, it's also in all sorts of places as well. Um, mm. Oh no, isn't that um, uh, what you know? Like one of the really key pieces of wisdom about karate is what you're yeah. learning as you go through the go through your belts is how rarely you should need to use this, yeah. like how uh, how how much what the skill that you're learning is how to not use it rather than use it um, um yeah so they've run off there's just these three kids left piggy jack and simon and uh, ralph says there we are three blind mice um he ralph's thinking it's the first time he sort of flirts with the idea of you know what sod it if no one wants me to be chief and no one's listening to me i'll just i'll just let someone else do it let jack yeah. do it yeah. And Piggy basically says, you know, you'll be okay if you do that, but what's going to happen to me? Because yeah. yeah. Piggy's very, he's got a very sort of um, sophisticated grasp of this. He he says, you know, Jack hates you, but he, it's to Ralph, but he can't do anything to you, yeah. but he can do something to me. <laughs> and that's what's going to happen if you step down, you know, please yeah. don't. Yeah, it's dead interesting that, isn't it? Like having the smarts to know that that's the way it works, but not to feel able to apply those smarts to actually looking after yourself. Yeah. Like, and But again, again, it's a great sort of parable little, you know, half-page vignette of what government is about. You know what I mean? Like, Because what, what you want when you're electing somebody is somebody who makes it so that you don't have to walk around with a knife out all the time trying to look after yourself you know what i mean mm. and somebody who will identify those in the in the society who could do you harm and make it so they don't do you harm um mm. and that's absolutely you know that's what that's kind of the 
basis of, of, of democratic governance insofar as like law and order goes and um and and it's just again you know and you believe this in the mouth of piggy because he's such a well-written character yeah uh, we move on to beast from air the third chapter for today and the last one we're doing um we zoom out from the island up to the sky there's a sort of a, a, a dogfight going on in, in the air. There's these these planes um, having a battle. Yeah. One um, sort of explodes, and this uh, this figure um, parachutes down onto the island. It's um, it sort of blows through and sort of lands sort of most of the way up the mountain. It's this sort of body attached to a parachute. Um, Goodness, the way that's described. Is yeah. bloody good, isn't it? Like mm. just the just the. I mean, first of all, you know the dogfight was going on so far above the island that you couldn't even hear a faint popping from the guns, and mm. then a parachute appears, and it's absolute masterpiece of how of what you're not being told as much yeah. as about what you are being told because he never actually says this figure is dead. He no. just says he refers to it as it all the time. And just describes how the parachute moves, and then what that does to it, the object on the end, until it becomes yeah. clear that this is a, you know, a ragdoll, a corpse, and and it's brilliant. I mean, so flipping good. Just as a little scene, you want a again, whatever it is, two hundred word, three hundred word short short story. These fantastic, really, mm. really, really spectacular. So the the twins are um, keeping the fire going on the uh, well. They're not doing a good job of it. They're supposed to keep, keep they're sleeping by the now diminished fire. Um, they wake up in the morning, and they are disturbed by there's the sound of a roar from the the jungle, and it's basically sort of the parachute opening in the wind. Um, but they hear that they may catch a glimpse of something as well. And then they they're sprinting back to the others to sort of call for help because they feel they've they've just seen the beast. Yeah, and it's like they they go into a description of what they saw and what they heard. Which oh yeah, yeah. is glorious. Uh, I saw it was teeth. It was chasing me. Oh, it nearly had me. Had me hand on my shoulder. Yeah, I turned round and it said, you know, I'm from the the Black Lagoon. Me, <laughs> this whole description, <laughs> which is actually just grown from. In fairness, it's a fairly scary thing that they can't mm. describe, but it is a very loud noise. That's all that's actually happened. But it turns yeah. into this so glorious narrative <laughs> of, of it was oh the teeth size of mountains and and yeah it, it looked me dead in the eye and said I know what you did last summer and yeah. all of this sort of fantasy <laughs> stuff. Yeah, but you think I think this is quite a good comment on sort of the unreliability of eyewitnesses as well because I do oh, think yeah. that these these two these two they're not sort of telling they, they they genuinely think this happened genuinely think they saw this stuff. It's it's sort of yeah. their like partly it's because they're children. Yeah. But I don't think they they sort of they're trying to have anyone on. I think they genuinely this is what they saw because they were so frightened. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, very much. Tell you what that reminds me of actually. There's a um there's a brilliant bit in like uh, do you know Jonathan Creek the sort of BBC the detective. Yeah. He's not a detective but whatever you know like mystery series. Um uh there's a bit where he's trying to track somebody down and he goes into and the, the last place they've been seen is is this restaurant this like fast food restaurant. So he goes in, shows somebody a photo and says, uh, is this the guy that you saw? And the girl behind the counter goes, oh, definitely him, yeah, with the hair and the, yeah, d- 
definitely saw him. Yeah. <laughs> and he comes out and goes, right, brilliant, I know he wasn't here at all. And the person <laughs> whose job, the sidekick whose job it is to go, but I don't understand, on behalf of the audience, says, I don't understand. And it's a picture of Newt Gingrich, like the, the American politician. And it's just <laughs> like, it's this confirmation thing of like, if somebody feels like saying yes to that question will make them important and will make them have been a part of the process, they will yeah. say and they will believe that that's the person that they saw. Yeah. And, you know, there is that sense of, uh, there, we were all worried about this beast, and I could definitely tell you there is a beast, and, and I saw it because there was a sound, and it was horrible. <laughs> uh, and just the sort of weird cachet of that. Exactly. I don't think it makes them, I don't think it means that they're lying. I think they genuinely believe it because they want this position of having been the people who saw the dread beast. Hmm. Yeah, um, Jack immediately is sort of like, right, let's cowboy up. We're gonna, we're gonna go find it. <laughs> Putting together a posse. <laughs> yeah, um, and then again, because we're at a crisis point now, and there's the adrenaline's pumping. Um, Jack is just disregards the rules again. Ralph's talking about. Ralph mentions the conch again, and Jack's like, "Well, enough of this conch bollocks." He actually says. Um, it's time some people knew they've got to keep quiet. He's basically saying, no, no, not not all voices are equal. Some are more equal than others. And <laughs> you know what? There are certain people who shouldn't be speaking anymore. Yeah. And th- you, you see where this is going now. Yeah, absolutely. And like, and, and again, he makes that argument by instinct. And so mm. that happening so soon after him freestyling the the despot's communication handbook in six <laughs> breaths that feels a little bit beyond it to me that feels a little bit like i know you're describing how you see despotism emerge but this is a bit fucking pat isn't it like this is person who's all action who has really embraced the possibility of killing who's worked out how to manipulate people using their fears into doing what he wants them to do and has now begun to shut down dialogue it's a bit pat on the other hand, I had I have never lived through the very genuine prospect of such a regime literally ruling the world. So possibly Golding had some trauma to work off about this. And who mm. am I to tell him that he was wrong to do it in this way? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I find it completely believable that he would say this now, Jack. It's like it's, 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 this is yeah. very in keeping with him. It's like you know what. Why are we even listening to some of this lot? They're all useless apart you know from what? a few uh, people solid. I think are important. Yeah, um, yeah, maybe it's fair enough. Maybe I shouldn't look at it structurally and just look at it from the character and it's just, yeah, like, yeah, he's a prick. He's, you know, wanker's going to wanker, aren't they? And that's exactly what he's doing. They're trying to work out where it is and they decide the one place on the island they haven't explored yet is this bit sort of at the end of the island where it sort of tapers into a little mini island of its own, which... Um, which which is just sort of there's basically we get to it in a bit, but it's basically sort of a ledge that leads out onto a, almost an island of itself, which is this tower, which almost yeah. looks like a fort. Yeah. So they're going to go and check that out. Um, they head over there. This is the this is the moment where um, it's become clear that two of these kids, the twins are no longer seen as two different people anymore. This is a really <laughs> strange thing. But the, everyone just refers to them from now on as Sam Nerick. Yeah. It, like, like, a, yeah. like, one, like a one-word name, Sam Nerick, yeah. rather than yeah. Sam and Eric. Yeah. And they're all... They, they never... 
I, I, I think this was, I thought this was a really I've never come across it before. It was a really interesting idea that like when you break down when society breaks down, twins just, just identical twins person. just become one person. <laughs> that's well, and that's dead interesting. Actually, I recently read a book called On the Black Hill by Bruce Chatwin, which the main characters of which are a pair of twins. And mm. there's all sorts of things you do with twins in literature. You know, the light side and dark side of the same personality and the rest of it. Um, but there is that sense of like great security in each other. Um, mm. You know what I mean? Like that idea of twins get to be a society unto themselves and thereby secure their own well-being in a way that other people kind of can't, even if they have siblings of different ages. Mm. Um, and I feel like that's the that's the thing that's the thing that's kind of going on with these two. Uh, it's worth saying as well, though, that like you know, if you're like you know, you've got you know, if there are two two friends who are particularly close, or you're friends with a couple, you know, if y- your relationship with each of them begins to become begins to have a third element and it's both of them referred to as a single word um uh yeah yeah it's that that is something that happens as well um but yeah so they they head over to this part of the island simon's with them and it's kind of clear that he is the only one now because i think ralph believes it no that's Simon eric have told him simon's the only one who still believes there isn't a beast but um, he, he doesn't have the vocabulary, and probably even if he did, the rest of the children don't have the sort of mental capacity to understand yeah. how he knows that and what yeah. and what it implies. Yeah. So he's just sort of wandering along with everybody else as well. Yeah. They get to this. They get to this sort of part of the island called the castle or the fort, um, and Ralph and Jack go on to explore it. And this this does a little bit to sort of heal their relationship because they sort of remember when they were exploring on the first day and how much they've got in common. But every time they do remember that, they also hot on the heels is the memory of how much is sort of else has happened that's pushed them apart since. But they they, they take a look at this place and. Jack's really excited because it's like it looks like a fort, and he's like, "This is this is brilliant," and he sort of regresses again to like just total <laughs> child, doesn't he? he d- well, yeah, but again, very militarized child, isn't it? Like it's very sort <laughs> yeah. of like because there's a bit, it's, it's and it's I can't work out if what Golding's doing here is sort of saying there's something sinister about all the fact that almost all boys play at war, hmm. or if he's doing specifically for this character. What he's saying is, um, is that there's a, is that like, sure, all boys play war, but then this one actually wants to have a war. <laughs> all boys, you know, build forts, but he would actually quite like to have a heavily fortified encampment that he could use to control <laughs> large areas of territory. You know, yeah. like there's this sense of, is he actually turning into a kind of, you know, maniac warmonger? Uh, as well as a psychopath and a despot. Yeah. Um, so they, they, they check out this place. <laughs> yeah, Jack's got designs on it, as you say. Um, they wander back, say there's no beast here. All the kids are really excited about this new area they've found. Ralph realises that, fucking hell, the smoke's gone out again. On the <laughs> so we've got to head back. But I, but- and once again, I'm just sad that he doesn't and he can't, for reasons of historical and character verisimilitude, he can't use the phrase, for fuck's sake! Because <laughs> that's what he should do. Then. Yeah. 
And but the thing is, he says, right, we've got to go start the fire again. We've got to go back, and the rest of them don't want to know. And he yeah. he he get he ends up with a barely sort of control, like almost mutiny, because yeah. most of them want to either stick around here playing or they want to go back to the beach. No yeah. one really wants to sort of worry about this fire business anymore. Yeah. And he's just we end this chapter in just kind of despair for Ralph because he's just like no one seems to care about the fire anymore. Like yeah. that's been the one thing he's that's been the most important yeah. thing that he's had to do. And yeah. it's the one thing he's he's sort of the most important part of him being chief is to make sure that a fire keeps going, and yeah. he's just unable to do it. Yeah, yeah, very much, very much. And it, again, parallels with with you know politics, where there's one thing that everybody says is great, although you know, lots of things that everybody says is great, but which nonetheless managed to get eroded over time just because people care about other things in the short term more than that, mm. um, or you know, or will not prioritise it in the way that maybe they maybe they could. Um, and it, it, I mean, it's just, it's, I mean, at that point, it starts to feel almost prophetic. Um, but, um, it's a very powerful piece of, piece of, like, sketching again. And, and you, you do end up thinking, you know, poor Ralph, really. Hmm. And there we are, end of this week. Yeah. And we're on a, it feels like we're teetering here. Yeah. Something, I think something, yeah. uh, rather frightening is, is going to happen. Shit's going to get real. I'll tell you what it is, Matt. We're at episode eight of an early Game of Thrones season. Everything's <laughs> everything's teetered up. Everything's built up. The characters have been established. There's a, there's a, there's a psychopathic twelve year old with extremely poor impulse control and a position of authority. <laughs> <laughs> it's going off. Join us next week <laughs> for that roller coaster. Uh, we we will do the next three chapters if you're reading along with us. So we're going from beast from. Hang on a minute. Is it Beast from Air or just Red Beast we from just Air? Red Beast from Air. We've just Red Beast. So we're going from shadows and tall trees to <laughs> everybody in the fifties wrote like Whoa. Ian McKellen talks <laughs> to a very unsettling chapter name: "A View to a Death." Can help. Sounds like it sounds like a Bond film. I was going to say think... that if that's... <laughs> If this has got, if this features Christopher Walken as a maniac mining magnet or whatever the hell he was in that film, I will be impressed. Oh, if the imagine, soundtrack's by Grace imagine, Jones, I will buy today. I'll tell you. Imagine if this parachutist is in fact alive and Christopher Walken. <laughs> I was going to say 007. But yeah. 007. No, I love the. It's far better if it's Christopher Walken. Kids, guys, you're on the island. I don't know why. <laughs> oh, very good. Very you, good. I no, didn't know you had it. I didn't know how you had it. A Christopher Walken impression. Everyone's got a Christopher Walken impression. Are you kidding? Everybody's got one of those. We'll, we'll, you've got to work on yours, and then we'll have that in the last last episode of this podcast. Jeez. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> well, look forward to that, everybody. Uh, until then, uh, we'll until be back then. next week. All right. Bye-bye. <laughs>